Welcome to the Frontier Space Podcast, a series about the environment, engineering, and health on Earth, in space, and beyond, with your host, Cole Lutz. Dr. Leslie Field, welcome to the Frontier Space Podcast. Thank you so much for having me here, Cole. I'm really interested to hear what, what your podcast is all about and to let you know about our work. We had to share your um, important research and work here and uh, would love to hear more about what really inspired you toward this research to preserve ice. It's like, oh heavens, what, <laughs> what could I do about that? And I had been taught by a great mentor at one of my jobs, Hewlett Packard Labs, uh, that I you know, if not me, who, if not now, when? That's a beautiful quote from way, way back. And it's so true. And it's like, well, okay, what could I, as one person out of billions, do about this? And I think it's like really a function of asking ourselves each day, hey, you know, how much dying marine life and animals do we continue to, you know, damage and and then feeling those emotions and feeling their emotions and and the coral and and all the ecosystems yeah i think most of us who are doing this kind of work you know really diligently really full out are doing it out of love for what we've got here and what we what we we can't afford to lose right because um but the the loss of the biodiversity on the planet that has been sustaining us all this time and i i asked myself a really simple question finally it's like i wonder if there's some bright reflective safe material that we could locally put on top of ice so that we could see if there were any you know unintended consequences there that we could put on top of ice and make the ice last longer. And that's been the thread of my work uh, ever since then. Uh, started out focused on sea ice, uh, have switched now because it's hard to get permissions to do field testing on sea ice. And it's hard to learn what you're doing really, you know, to actually figure out how well it works in real conditions if you don't have the permissions to work in in those areas and i would never work without permissions and so uh you know we've done a lot on ponds we have tested this out thoroughly on homeowner pond uh, pond up in Utkiagvik, alaska when where we had permissions and and worked with the native corporation up there uh to to uh help us out and you know co-lead it and get provide the permissions and all and we have found that this works this works really well uh, we use a, a safe material um, in widespread use, mainly for building applications. With glacial ice, you've got people who are having really hard problems uh, occurring, you know, uh, outburst floods, glacial lake outburst flooding can take down houses and infrastructure and hydropower and all that. And you have problems with your water supply. And so we were invited to work in the Himalayas. And that allows us then to really focus more on the adaptation effects of what can we do to make things 
work better so that the agriculture is more predictable, the water supply is more predictable, and the risks are less. And so that's that's our focus at Bright Ice Initiative. So that's the second nonprofit I've founded. And Bright Ice Initiative is, uh, we, we've already done some testing in Iceland with the Icelandic Meteorological Office, which uh, looks promising, but looks also like there's more tailoring we need to do to now deal with slopes. <laughs> and we are planning to do testing in both very small scale field tests still. Um, we are planning to do testing in Iceland and in the Himalayas uh, next year, the 2024. And uh, that's, uh, that's a really neat thing. We're following processes recommended both by the Indian Ministry for the Environment and the AGU, American Geophysical Union in the United States, which has updated its position statement on how do we test safely these small scale, um, you know, how do we test these climate interventions uh, that are proposed to, to do it in a safe way? And the secret is you certainly do it, well, it's no secret at all, but you, you do it transparently. You do it with co-leadership from people who live in the area. You collaborate on how it's done. You make sure you're, you're helping with the actual challenges that they're facing. And you do it at a small scale to start with, with a lot of environmental impact assessment and a lot of um, water quality assessment as you go before you would dream of doing anything larger. So those are the, you know, collaborating with the Icelandic Meteorological Office this, this year has been wonderful. And, uh, you know, we had all three layers of permissions that you could possibly get uh, for this work on their second largest glacier. And we're still uh, digesting the results of that. But it looks like we have a little more to go to be able to reliably and, and well uh, uh, keep things uh, in place long enough to do the most amount of good in, in a sloped area. So that was a fairly long answer, but it's, uh, it's what we're up to. It's what we're doing. That's, that's wonderful. Um, so you mentioned this is the second nonprofit, the First one being that one particular ice project, AIP. Yeah, it started out as Ice 911, which I really loved that name, uh, <laughs> which embeds in it both a blessing and a and a and a curse, if you will. Uh, the Kurt Vonnegut story that Ice Nine came from, uh, you know, talked about what if we could keep things frozen. Uh, was not, I don't think, even worrying about climate change, although he might have been. He was very far sighted. Uh, but it went too far. And so when you're doing some intervention or some treatment, you really want to make sure you're doing the right thing. So I love I loved that title. It became renamed Arctic Ice Project. And uh, when, when uh, we got invited to start working on glacial ice, I was more interested in that um, than, than AIP was at that point. And, you know, after a while, so, you know, I'll, I'll use my energy to do this new thing. And uh, I, I do like the idea that we could act as a catamaran uh, rather than a couple of different, you know, efforts there out there in the world. Um, we could coordinate. Um, so, yeah. And so the Arctic Ice Project is focusing on ice in the Arctic and bright ice um, glaciers for now. That's like... Well, it's it's not... I mean, yes, in the Arctic, but it's also, 
mainly uh, focused on sea ice at this point. Um, and uh, permissions are hard to get on actually doing field testing on sea ice. So I am, I'm delighted to be working in a realm where we can get permissions for field tests and, and work with local people to do it. Yeah. What is like the main um, reasoning behind the uh, permission difficulty? But they, they cautioned that just international treaties take so long that, that it was, you know, it was going to be a long, long time. And I haven't seen any signs that the international permissions are coming yet. So that's that's the real holdup. Whereas on a glacier, you have, you know, your land based and things you, you can test uphill, downhill, before and after, you know, what you're doing. It's not, you know, going to be diluted into a, you know, an, an entire ocean. Uh, you're going to be able to do all the testing you need to on water quality and, and you know, did it have any impact on anything. And so far, the results are now coming back from a laboratory that we got to collaborate with uh, in Iceland. And uh, it's, it's looking, you know, as, as harmless as we hoped. Uh, so this is good. There's also testing on our materials that's going on still uh, funded by AIP's work now, uh, collaboration I had set up back when I was there uh, with Sintef Ocean Norway. And they're really expert on these sorts of things too. To look at what what are the marine impacts, if any. And so that's a, that's really nice. Uh, we, we keep looking over at, at that as much as they're publishing. I would, would imagine, you mentioned the, these um, silicon nanoparticles, SI and P's, these these hollow glass spheres, right? They're they're uh, believed to be safe, and and what does that mean? And and how it um, it'd be difficult to test the marine biology effects. From that. Well, I have to I have to correct one thing. These are not nanoparticles. Um, they are intentionally we use uh, things that are above 10 microns so that you're not going to have, uh, you know, respiratory effects. You're not gonna have inhalation effects. Um, and they are, yeah, hollow glass microspheres have been used in, there's a half dozen major manufacturers worldwide, I believe. Um, one of which is going over to using some recycled materials to make them, which is great. That'll make the environmental impact of making them less. Uh, and they are, uh, you know, they're made of silica glass. And silica is one of the most abundant materials, you know, in the world. It's in our rocks, our minerals, our, our, uh, our oceans, our rivers. It, it's there, you know. It's something we all evolved with. The nice thing about silica glass is that uh, glass becomes amorphous, meaning that it, it is really... Um, harmless shapes. Uh, it's, it's things that uh, do not cause harm to people. So, so that's good. But going ahead to then, well, is any sort of marine creature going to have any, any effect from this? What is the fate of these materials over time? It's really nice having a scientific lab very well outfitted to do this, like Sintef Ocean. You know, when, when, when doing some research into silicon dioxide online and 
and um, it like research online suggests uh, they can be these particles can be cytotoxic and induce cell death. There are forms of particles, especially if you're going probably nano and below 10 micron sort of things. Um, there are shapes that can give asbestosis-like responses, right? If you have a needle-like shape, the thing about glass is that you melt that into round shapes. It's, it's, a, it's a, you know, amorphous. You don't get jagged needle-like things there. So, so SiO2 has a water solubility of 0.12 grams per liter. And I think some of the research maybe from you or others suggest it dissolves within six to nine months. Yeah, that, that seems to be, uh, that, that seems to line up with what we've seen in this pond, this, this homeowner's, you know, well-lined uh, Minnesota pond uh, over the years. Um, it depends on the pH. You can make things, I mean, depending where you are in the water, uh, but uh, we probably need to figure out one more piece of how to keep these things a little more stable if we want them to last for quite a while in the yes. in this environment. The, um, might imagine with the local wind gradient, uh, the, the hydrophilic surfaces become important. Yeah, the hydrophilicity, the hydrophilic nature of the hollow glass microspheres that we've been using are really reassuring. That's what we have the most experience with so far, right? Anything else? Yeah, well, I wanted to dive a bit deeper into the, um, uh, the materials side mm -hmm. and what's going on in, this, uh, in the atoms and these vibrations. Um, mm. There's one, wondering, do you think unbonded or bonded atoms um, would might be better at ref reflecting light and have a longer lifespan. Not sure I understand the question. Um, these these uh, materials, both these types of materials, the clays and the uh, and the uh, silica based, silica glass based, are very reflective, and they're granular. Perhaps you're going back to most people when they. Think about trying to preserve ice or snow reflectivity. We'll go immediately to sheets, and I did too. Uh, you know, uh, but it's that's very hard way to go. And what I found, I, I got initially permission to work on a pond up uh, in California. You know, a few hours drive away from here, and um, where they had a you know enough snow, and. What I found was that as the, the melt starts, which is when you really want to have your most protection, if you can, any kind of sheet starts having melting coming in from the edges. And any wind then goes and displaces the sheet, even if it's a hydrophilic sheet. Uh, you know, um, I had hydrophilic aspects to it, but maybe it wasn't completely hydrophilic. And so they'd blow away. And that's just that's just a mess. It's impractical. It means that any sort of anchoring is going to be horribly expensive. And it's it's gonna just make a mess. Uh, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't stay where you put it. 
and that's oh. useless. So, <laughs> so I, I then started wondering what granular materials, maybe that's where you're getting to, what granular materials could I use that could have the same effect? And that's when I started looking at the, you know, I thought about uh, those beautiful gift things you I used to find in gift shops in Maine, for instance, Japanese fishing floats um, are just beautiful and they're round glass and it's like, whoa, I like that, but I want something smaller and white. And, and that's how I found hollow glass microspheres. Um, and those, those are a much more practical, much more uh, affordable, you know, et cetera, et cetera, type of material you could use. Maybe that answers the question you were asking. Yeah, I think, um, I'm understanding that the like sheet approach and specifically like like a mirror tarp or um, QMMAs, I think it could be a, affordable and easily anchored. I think it's worth considering more. Oh, I, I've tried a lot along those lines. <laughs> I have. Um, the Swiss, I think, right now are using rubbery, thick, heavy sheets. That's the best they've managed to come up with at this point. And I wonder what that does to the environment around there while they're on. I mean, certainly <laughs> that's far from a natural environment at that point. Um, but I guess it does preserve the snow. So that's what they're after, the snow and ice. Um, yeah, I mean, I... I tried a lot of sheets <laughs> my colleagues have as well um but yeah new ideas or or new old ideas are always welcome you know you think you've you've learned the complete answer and maybe you, you haven't tried everything you could yeah and i'm i'm hoping for that because that's something that could really solve you know some of the really dire problems we have now from these positive feedback loops where where the melt is is accelerating the oceans are warming it's it's just it's it's one of these exponential situations um where you know it's not only getting worse but it's getting worse faster and faster that's that's what that means so yeah, yeah it's it's an urgent situation yeah, I think um, it, on the environmental like saving side, it's kind of can be hard to feel that here on the land and surface that this is urgent. It, it's um, very urgent. And, you know, at this point, things have gone on long enough that I'm I'm learning to get it in my gut, too, that the best we can do may be to give people more time to adapt, more ways to adapt. Um, you know, at this point, there uh, we, we are on that exponential curve and if we can slow the acceleration of the exponential curve, we're doing a lot. Um, it, you know, it's, it's unlikely anytime soon to get back to anything like, you know, 1960 conditions or whatever, right? So, it's a it's it's a dire situation and it's getting worse. I think it's uh, it's how important yours and, and the team's research and work is. Um, I think, yeah, uh, I mean, I'm working on this because it's urgent. Yeah. <laughs>
some of the um, statistics we've came across is that on the um, Arctic ice side, the, uh, you could help preserve a significant amount uh, up to 50 centimeters in the Arctic and 20% across large parts of the central Arctic. Right, the climate modelers that, that I've been working with for years that are now carrying it on, uh, you know, at Arctic Ice Project are coming up with results that are showing that you can slow things down by by preserving. And, and the areas that, you know, we had uh, the Climformatics climate modelers, Subarna and Dedalina, and I had been looking at, uh, advised by real polar experts like Peter Wadhams, um, so the Beaufort Gyre and the Fram Strait, those are strategic areas. And, and that was the main thing I was asking the climate modelers was, are there specific strategic areas that would have the most impact? Because you don't want to treat more than you have to, right? And uh, that, that looks like it's coming out very well. They gave a very powerful poster presentations um, for the uh, very, I'm sorry, I just got some weird message here. Uh, but uh, some very large uh, uh, positive impacts of being able to do this in the right areas. And I'm asking similar questions, we'll be asking similar questions on glacial ice. You know, what are the strategic spots? Where would it be the most help for people in their adaptation, people reducing risks um, as... Yay. <laughs> it took a while. <laughs> yeah, there um yeah, with, with fifteen million people globally at risk near glaciers, I think your your work and the Bright Ice in, um initiative becomes ever more important. So Yeah, that's an it's important work for sure. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for highlighting us in this way. Um it is important to get the word out. And you're right, it's hard for people to drink it in. Um, I've been reading more and more that it's really hard for people, unless they happen to you know, be lifelong scientists, but it's hard for people to drink in the impact of what an exponential rise is all about, You know what a, which is basically what a positive feedback loop is all about. That is that the more it happens, the faster it keeps happening. And it's, it's not just, getting faster, it's it's accelerating how fast it gets faster, right? And that's that's just hard to visualize. And I think it's like really a function of asking ourselves each day, hey, you know, uh, you know, how much dying marine life and animals do we continue to, you know, damage and and then feeling those emotions and feeling their emotions and and the coral and and all the ecosystems yeah i think most of us who are doing this kind of work you know really diligently really full out are doing it out of love for what we've got here and what we what we we can't afford to lose right because even if you're just looking at it from an investment standpoint, for instance, you know, those, those trillions of dollars of economic losses, uh, 
you know, should be important. Um, but the, the loss of the biodiversity on the planet that has been sustaining us all this time, you know, has, has been tuned by evolution over all this time, um, is supporting us. It's the only place we know of that does that, right? And so far. And it's, um, it's just so incredibly important to preserve it and then beyond that, I mean, I'm looking out the window here and there while I'm gathering my thoughts at these various points. And it's like, there's so much to love out there. It's all that life. This is what we've all grown up with, what we, what, what we cherish. And gosh, why wouldn't we do our utmost to preserve that? Yes, um, we'll have to keep this in mind. I think it's beautiful and uh, we look forward to supporting your work and, and also mentioned um, including how to support an, an inscription and uh, to support Bright Ice and AIP. Well, thank you very much for finding us and for <laughs> for your support. Yeah, Bright Ice is brighteisinitiative.org um, and uh, I I post some other things on LinkedIn, so you can find that from from Leslie Field as well. And uh, AIP, you know, is 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 still uh, working away. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it's all important work. It's very important work. Thank you, thank you. Same to you. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Um, take care. Thank you for listening those who are doing that. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Cole. Take care. Pleasure to meet you.